0: Migration Conversations is a podcast that invites persons to share their migration stories. Hosted by myself, Professor Jamie Liu, each episode is an in depth conversation with people who have experienced the Canadian immigration system or other migration regimes up close. We talk to migrants, immigrants, lawyers, policymakers, advocates, and experts. We hope that these conversations shed light on the challenges migrants face through
1: their own voices.
0: I just want to welcome everyone to um, this webinar today. My name is Jamie Liu, and I'm an Associate Professor at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law. This morning, I'll be moderating our discussion from the unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. As well, I know many of our speakers will be presenting from all over Canada and the world, and we also pay respect to all Indigenous people in their home territory. We acknowledge the traditional knowledge keepers, both young and old, and we honour their courageous leaders, past, present and future. I want to thank the University of Ottawa's Public Law Centre and the Human Rights Research and Education Centre for sponsoring this event. Today's event features five case studies of how stateless persons are coping during the COVID-19 pandemic. Throughout this past year, we've witnessed how no person or community on this planet has been untouched by COVID-19 a year in, <clears throat> and there are countless reports about how the differential experiences that various communities face in accessing healthcare, but also how public health measures meant to stem its spread may actually be harming particular persons. The pandemic has put into sharp focus the inequities and the gaping fractures in societies all over the world. This webinar presents a snapshot of some of the grassroots advocacy and work but emerging research on how stateless persons and undocumented migrants are coping in five communities. The work of our presenters will be featured in the upcoming issue of statelessness and citizenship review in their critique and commentary section. This issue will be coming out in July and I'll be um, uh, posting a link to all of you in a few moments to let you know where you can find that issue. Before we begin, I want to let everyone know um, that our speakers have asked that their images or their faces not be uh, captured or shared on social media due to safety issues in their countries of uh, origin. I, however, fully encourage you to share or tweet their remarks and their research findings. I'll introduce each speaker in turn and should you have any questions, please write them in the Q&A box, which you can find at the bottom of your screen and I hope to have time after all the presentations to pose them to our excellent presenters. First, I would like to introduce Frederique Chabot. She is the Director of Health Promotion with Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights. She'll be speaking about the Canadian context. Welcome, Fred.
2: Thank you so much, Jamie. Uh, Jamie just introduced me For I'm speaking on behalf of Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights, a national organization dedicated to advancing sexual and reproductive rights in Canada and globally. And I'm very thankful to be here with all of you for this conversation. So thank you for having me. Uh, Today, I will share with you some of the observations we made as reproductive rights defenders during the last year. It might not be a particularly surprising story for some of you, but it is definitely a worthy one to tell. As as Jamie said, like for a lot of other issues, COVID shone a harsh light on ongoing injustice in our sector and showed where policy progress or safety measures for some can create new barriers for others. So in the spring of 2020, as the world pivoted on a dime towards a pandemic response, my colleagues and I connected with partners from across Canada, so sexual health centers, abortion providers to monitor the shifts in needs and how providers of sexual and reproductive health services adapted to this novel situation. It was very quickly that we saw some concerning gaps in service emerge, and it was pretty obvious to us that those gaps had a disproportionate impact on stateless and undocumented people. We got to know that because Action Canada operates a toll-free pregnancy information and referral service, we call it the Access Line, paired with a national abortion fund to ensure those who face barriers can access abortion care uh, across Canada. Calls to the Access Line more than doubled in the first months of 2020. And this gave us uh, a finger on the pulse of how things were evolving throughout the pandemic response. So what started happening is that While many hospital-based programs continued at their usual volume in terms of offering sexual and reproductive health care, and clinics did their best to maintain services at the same level, despite changing protocols, some hospitals made decisions that lined up with public health safety measures that were being communicated, which really ended up restricting abortion access. So in real terms, this means that despite abortion being deemed an essential service right at the beginning of the pandemic, In order to follow public health information, um, or instructions rather, hospitals who usually saw people from all over the country suddenly restricted uh, restricted that and were only agreeing to see people in their catchment, uh, in their regional catchment. So that effectively cut down the number of service providers available to people from all over. That was a big issue uh, since only a few centers go to later gestational stages in Canada and they serve everyone all over the territory. That sparked concerns immediately about access to abortion beyond the first trimester, as that often requires farther travel for anyone residing outside of urban centers and some specific urban centers. This is especially significant for people in precarious immigration situations because they experience more delays to care often uh, because they can't leave their employer's house or they can't take a day off. Uh, they have to save money. There's some um, insecurities around traveling across borders, at uh, provincial borders, or even leaving the city, are isolated, don't speak English or French, etc. So this means many end up needing abortion care at a later gestational care uh, age on average. So that usually means traveling, but then because of COVID, bus routes were canceled, flight were canceled, provinces closed their borders, quarantine orders were put in place when traveling, COVID tests were made mandatory, etc., So usually when care becomes unavailable in Canada, our organization assists people in finding care in the United States. We are very used to that. This is a common practice despite how problematic that is. So while most Canadian citizens who saw all those doors close in front of them had the option of traveling to the United States despite the difficulties of such a journey and they were many, for undocumented and uninsured individuals, this is just not possible. So while some of them were lucky enough to be near an abortion provider in Canada who could see them, most were, like the rest of people in Canada, seeing the options dwindled sharply. It must be said that across populations, the main barrier to abortion care is financial, as people have to pay for travel and accommodation to access a point of service, or because they have to pay procedure fee out of pocket. For undocumented people who may have been close to a provider, there's still a need to pay significant procedure fees because of a lack of insurance. And with this in mind, it drives home how, while many people in Canada lost their income during the pandemic, the majority would have been able to access Canada's recovery benefits, including some non-citizens, which could mitigate such a barrier, including the Canada recovery benefits, so CERB. That said, people without a social insurance number were denied financial aid at a time where businesses shut down, jobs disappeared and entire sectors of the economy slowed down, leaving many without any financial resources. Those are just some of the many examples of how during the pandemic, obstacles that were already significant for this population were compounded. So economic obstacles, uh, geographic barriers, financial barriers, were magnified as well, and in some cases, measures that were put in place to enhance public health further erected barriers to healthcare for people in precarious immigration situations. And this is knowing that research is very clear on the impact of a denied abortion in terms of people's lives as they go on. One year later, Action Canada continues to feel Uh, resolute in our commitment to connecting the dots between sexual and reproductive rights and the struggles for migrant undocumented and stateless people. In Canada, we cannot, in good faith, advocate for improved access to a comprehensive package of sexual health services, including abortion, without centering the barriers experienced by those most impacted by laws, policies and practices that erect barriers to health care. So Action Canada continues to work with healthcare providers and institutions to ask that any programs created um, and any programs that could offer later care uh, needs to be realized to actually improve access in Canada. We advocate for firmly integrating the pathways to services for those who are uninsured and undocumented at the very heart of those programs. We also join our voice to the many who fiercely fight for status for all, a campaign that Calls for permanent status and for the rights of migrants and undocumented people generally, for the realization of reproductive rights and human rights generally. This is the only way. So, thank you, Jamie.
0: Thank you, Frederique. That was excellent, Um, very um, illuminating. In a community where uh, we might not know what's actually happening, without the grassroots advocacy and uh, work that your organization does. So, thank you so much. Next, uh, we'll hear from a team on the Malaysian case study and Baltasar is an advisor with ANAC, Advocates for Non-Discrimination and Access to Knowledge. Um, And Amanda Cheung is an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia, Department of Sociology. Just going to share my screen.
2: Thanks, Jamie.
3: Hi. Thanks for the introduction. So I'm uh, the founder of uh, ANAK, which is a grassroots organization with, with, which works with stateless and legally marginalized, ma- marginalized communities in Malaysia, East, uh, East Malaysia, in Sao Um and I wrote this with... Uh, Prof. Professor, Professor Dr. Manda. So, uh, just to share a bit of our uh, experience on the ground during the pandemic. So, during the start of the pandemic in Sabah, East Malaysia, ANAK provided emergency aid to communities on the ground such as uh, food baskets and collected information from stateless and legally marginalized committees to be able to address information gaps and also misinformation about COVID. So there was a lot of fear on the ground and uncertainty. The yeah. And we were limited in movement due to the lockdown, so we explored collecting information through social media, such as online quiz through Facebook targeting, focus group discussion through WhatsApp, and also photo journaling through WhatsApp as well, through uh, by the community members. So this information was used to produce COVID-related infographics to disseminate the communities in their language. And through this experience, uh, we identified three particular challenges and vulnerabilities experienced by the community. Uh, Jamie, can you go to the next slide? So, firstly, the uh, loss of livelihoods. Uh, the Malaysian government instituted a na- nationwide movement control order uh, or a lockdown, which closed down all government and private premises except essential services such as healthcare, utilities, and supermarket. So, a stimulus package was announced. Um, however, uh, such as food baskets and one of cash assistance. However, this was only offered to Malaysian citizens. So left it left out uh, non-citizens to survive on their own. And many families which already have been in a state of subsist- subsistence living had to ration their foodstuff and rely on their neighbors' leftovers or charitable donations. And because they were unable to open bank accounts due to the lack of documentation, they had to sell off any savings they had, including um, such as in the form of gold, if they have any, uh, in exchange for cash to afford immediate needs, such as even food. So secondly, family separation. Some families we assisted Uh, resorted to sending their children to stay with other relatives because they did not have enough for their basic needs. So these and other forms of family separation, particularly those spanning national borders, took a great financial and emotional toll. One woman, uh, a Filipina living in Sabah, was almost due to give birth when her husband's mother fell sick in the Philippines. And their plan was for her husband to visit his mother and then come back in time for the birth of their baby. But due to the border shutdown, her husband was stuck in the Philippines and which left her alone to care for the five-year-old son while pregnant, which means she could not uh, go out to work. Um, so she gave birth to a baby girl at home um, in July 2020. And despite assistance from friends and NGOs, she was evicted from her room. Can you go to the next slide, Jamie? As She was unable to pay rent. So currently, she and her children uh, and the next slide, sorry. Um, are staying with a friend while they anxiously wait to be reunited with the children's father. Thirdly, the obstructive impacts of anti-immigrant crackdowns on the public health effort. During the pandemic, the government reinforced its punitive approach to non-citizens, building on a long history of exclusion treatment, which has included arrest, harassment, extortion, and detention. So in May 2020, for example, on the eve of Labor Day, during the holy month of Ramadan, the government launched an immigration crackdown in Peninsular Malaysia. So migrants and undocumented persons were arrested and confined in detention centres and prisons, which then became COVID hotspots throughout Malaysia. Um, While this unfolded in the Peninsular side of Malaysia mostly, these feelings of marginalisations and fear was also present in Sabah. The exclusion of these communities particularly in times of a health crisis is dangerous not only to these communities but to the health and well-being of whole societies our work has taught us that the denial of citizenship in itself is a major health risk so we make the following policy recommendations that we hope will be generalizable beyond the malaysian context treat stateless people as humans not security risks scapegoating migrants for the spread of COVID and enacting punitive measures against them will only undermine the public health effort to contain an infectious disease that does not discriminate on the basis of illegal status. Secondly, to listen, learn, and adapt. uh, Public health information campaigns geared towards the general population may not be accessible or appropriate for marginalized communities who face different constraints and needs and probably have different languages. It is vital that governments and civil society work together in order to understand the situations on the ground for stateless communities and to adapt communication strategies that ad- and other public health interventions accordingly. And lastly, to recognize that health is a human right, regardless of one's legal status. Access to health services for legally marginalized populations should not only be extended on a conditional or reactionary reactionary basis, and providing enduring and unconditional access to healthcare for all, irrespective of legal status, will foster inclusive societies that are more resilient to public health crisis. It is therefore crucial that governments leave no one behind when it comes to basic human right to health, whether it's during this current COVID pandemic or beyond it. Um, I would like to take the opportunity to thank the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, Our Journey, and Tanya Schools for their support um, in the implementation of our work. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Anne. That was so illuminating. Um, It just speaks volumes, um, your presentation as well as Frederic's, about um, having tailored responses and being able to... Um, talk to and listen to the people on the ground as to what their particular needs are. Um, next, I would like to welcome our third speaker, uh, Yvonne Sue, who is an assistant professor in interdisciplinary refugee and diaspora studies in the Department of Equity Studies at York University. She will, present, she will be presenting her team's research from Brazil.
4: Hi everyone, thank you so much, Jamie, for inviting me and our team. I'm speaking on behalf of uh, Dr. Euriko kalper Smith, who will be a speaker later, and our colleague Tyler Valiquette. Um, so we have a very creative title. It's called "Surviving Overlapping Precarity in a Gigantic Hellhole: A Case Study of a Venice of Venezuelan LGBTQI Plus Asylum Seekers and Undocumented Migrants in Brazil Amid COVID-19." So since 2015, more than five million people have fed fled Venezuela and 264,000 people have applied for asylum in Brazil. Closed borders during COVID-19 was a convenient cover for a growing humanitarian crisis along the border, as forcibly displaced peoples have no choice but to illegally move through those borders. Despite COVID-19, Venezuelans are still traveling to Brazil via trochas, which are irregular paths. Now, COVID-19 in Brazil, as many of you guys have seen online in the um, headlines about um, how how the government has not been dealing with it well, and how with the number high number of cases, uh, has made it so that you know, on March twenty-four, uh, March twenty-fourth, twenty twenty-one, uh, WHO stated that Brazil's COVID-19 situation was affecting its neighbors, prompting former President of, of Colombia. Uh, Ernesto Samper to tweet that Bolsonaro has managed to turn Brazil into a gigantic hellhole, which is where we got our title from. Uh, And as of mid-April, when we were writing this, the country has reported almost 14 million cases and over 370,000 deaths, which has made it the epicenter of uh, COVID-19 in Latin America. And the failure um, of the government to respond is a result of President Bolsonaro's Continual denial of the pandemic, calling the virus a measly cold, uh, and saying masks are for fairies or for sissies, a homophobic slur. Uh, In our methodology, we from March to April 2021, our team surveyed um, 19 Venezuelans altogether, 16 Venezuelan LGBTQI asylum seekers, and three undocumented migrants, and they're all Venezuelan citizens in Manaus and Brasilia. And our findings are um, that. First, many of them were unable to meet their basic needs due to a lack of livelihood, similar to people all over the world, their livelihoods, their jobs, their sources of income were either eliminated or made to be very unsafe. Many of these people have informal work, uh, sometimes as sex workers, sometimes selling um, items to people on the streets. So, of course, these have been banned and made quite unsafe due to covid as a result of their loss of livelihood, um, many of them have gone hungry. Our survey respondents, 14 out of 19, have mentioned that they don't have food on a daily basis. Another finding is that they're struggling with increased, increased mental health issues. Um, six respondents said that they had mental health struggles on a daily basis during COVID 19, uh, whereas before COVID 19, that, that number was zero. Uh, and then lastly, there's also uncertainty about their legal status. So asylum seekers uh, get their status cards, and they're valid for a year. Of course, during because the pandemic has lasted over a year, uh, all of their asylum status cards have expired. And usually, what the process is, you go to the Brazilian federal police um, to ask for an extension, which is. Easy and well, I shouldn't say easy, but which is more normal, uh, what happens during normal times. But the Brazilian police has closed down that aspect of their services during the pandemic, uh, and the only way to find out more information is to go on the, uh, the official website, which is in Portuguese. These Venezuelans speak and know Spanish, so they don't, they would not be able to understand the updated information. Um, So many of them have expired documents and then they fear for getting deported and they actually um, often um, hide away from the police uh, as a result of this misunderstanding or their lack of uh, understanding on what their actual legal status is. Um, Overall, we want to argue that Venezuelan LGBTQI asylum seekers and undocumented migrants are experiencing politically produced precarity. Precarity that is caused by the government and and their political situation, as well as overlapping precarity during the pandemic, as a result of the multiple layers of um, precarity that they that they face. Um, and then we also asked refugees, our asylum seekers and undocumented migrants, to give us recommendations uh, for how the government could do better to help their situation. And they had three uh, main ones. The first is to improve protection through the documentation process. So give more clarity, make the documentation process faster. They advocated for access to more food and access uh, to shelters because they feel uh, there are not enough shelters around uh, for them. And then access to health facilities because they feel that there are not enough uh, COVID, uh, COVID-19 testing, there's not enough COVID-19 education awareness, and in general hygiene products are, are difficult to, to come by. And then lastly, we want to link, um, make the link between being undocumented and statelessness. So statelessness is categorically different from being undocumented. However, the UNHCR I Belong campaign further details that being undocumented by virtue of no longer having access to one's birth certificate, or through circumstances of displacement, raises the risk of statelessness. Uh, However, uh, promisingly, Brazil is one of the few countries with a statelessness determination procedure. Um, but with the increase of people coming over uh, during the pandemic and being undocumented because, uh, you know, the the sound process has been halted, uh, we're not sure how the future will look like for, for their situation. Uh, and that's the end of our presentation. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Yvonne. That was very illuminating. And um, thank you for sharing um, your research, um, especially when it's uh, targeting a particularized uh, group within a country. We know that it's affecting People differently all over the world, but to also understand that it's affecting, you know, LGBTQ undocumented and uh, stateless persons is, you know, a particular uh, particular concern. Um, Next, our fourth case study will be presented by Saifala Muhammad, a journalist, graduate, researcher, and Rohingya advocate. Um, As well, Eureka Cowper-Smith is a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Science at the University of Guelph They'll be looking at the Rohingya in Bangladesh.
5: Hello, everyone. Jamie, thank you for having us here today. As introduced, I recently completed my PhD in political science at the University of Guelph, and I worked with the Rohingya social movement in Canada, which is how I met Saifullah Mohammed, a Rohingya activist with the Canadian Rohingya Development Initiative. Saifullah and I analyzed the challenges that Rohingya refugees face in the camps in Cox's Bazar, Bangladesh during COVID-19. Rohingyas are an indigenous community of Myanmar who mostly fled the country in 2017 due to ongoing state-led genocide. To develop our findings, we looked at secondary sources, both academic and NGO reports, and Stifel, who was born in Cox's Bazar, is kept up to date through his family and networks in the camps. We found Um, in our our analysis that there are five main themes, likely unsurprising to many of you in the audience um, and fellow panelists. So first, uh, food and water sources uh, became even more scarce during the pandemic. Second, housing is inadequate and insecure during the best of times in the camps, uh, let alone during a pandemic. Um, third, there is a lack of access to adequate health care and a shortage of medical supplies and testing capabilities. And other services such as education had also been curtailed since um, last year. And fourth, due to a longstanding internet blackout and various other communications obstacles, there's a huge lack of access to reliable information and misinformation is rampant. And finally, sexual and gender-based violence, SGBV, has become more prevalent in the camps. Our conclusion was concerning the camps in Bangladesh. The pandemic has blatantly revealed that ultimately a long-term political solution is urgently required. Currently, Bangladesh does not issue exit visas to Rohingya refugees, and many refugees do not hold official status. And this condition means that they cannot leave Bangladesh and be resettled in a third country. And at the same time, same a safe repatriation is not an option due to the ongoing coup d'etat in Myanmar and the likelihood of continued persecution if they were to return. And so this impasse is really heightened by the pandemic, um, which is really heightened by the pandemic means that Rohingya communities and the camps need to be able to access more permanent solutions to their plight, either within country or have the option to be resettled abroad. So in the interim absence of this long-term political solution, Saifel will now discuss recommendations that can be tied to our main findings.
6: Thank you. Uh... Dr. Iriko and Dr. Jimmy, uh, and all for this wonderful opportunity. Uh, significantly sensitive vulnerabilities uh, facing the Rohingya refugees in Kaksis Bazaar point to a number of recommendations and priorities uh, in term of package of support uh, the Rohingya refugee population need to foster their resilience uh, during this pandemic. Uh, just when uh, the Rohingya had seemed uh, to escape genocide, they are now left vulnerable to COVID-19. Uh, some evidence indicates that uh, one in the four Rohingya refugees show symptom of, symptom of uh, COVID-19 in the camps. It is unfortunately unrealistic to expect doctors, nurses, and healthcare workers uh, from around the world to be available uh, for aiding refugees uh, given the large international demand for the healthcare um, workers, many of the isolation practices suggest uh, for the Rohingya refugee camps are dependent on mass testings, which create more difficult due to the shortage of COVID nineteen testing equipment. So, as we discuss in our paper, um, the first thing is uh, tackling food insecurity. So even uh, with the continued food assistance to the Rohingya refugees in additional targeting to the host community residents uh, um, in Cox's Bazaar, Rohingya are Rohingya and the host community are reporting increase of food insecurity. Um, the loss of uh, loss of incomes uh, coupled uh, with higher price in the occasionally open market has led to decrease in food intake. Food insecurity sector partner range use and donor should continue to a scale up and increase in a kind voucher food support immediately uh, in the camp, particularly in the Bachanchor, where 20,000 Rohingya are left and asking for food, water and hygiene. Also present issue is school, vocational uh, learning and income generating a skill training during their closure of a learning center in Bangladesh. Currently, everything is open except the educational uh, institutions. Uh, for refugees, uh, education sector partner should bolster a remote learning material and methodologies to alleviate interruptions to, to learning. So, um, for, for all in Texas Bazaar who are living there, it is necessary to continue a scaling of remote learning uh, disseminated via mobile phone, radio, televisions, plus material distributions. Establishing a media uh, by concerned quarters to a long-term recovery strategy to address the educational gap created by the pandemic will best mitigate disruption to learning. So last, not the least, uh, it is essential that public communications uh, messaging on age and gender risk protection risks, human trafficking, including child marriage, child labor, reach all families, robust reporting channel need to reestablish and maintain, including in-person uh, um, uh, in options, phone and online hotline, as well as uh, provisioning made for legal and medical support for refugee facing protection rates. So in, uh, in March, uh, last March in 2021, um, more than 50,000 people became shelterless due to the fire incident in this uh, pandemic. Considering the monsoon coming um, just now, uh, the, the epidemic in the refugee camps uh, may have profound consequences requiring unrealistically large increase in the healthcare capacity and infrastructures. Detailed and realistic planning for the ores in all refugee camps in Bangladesh must begin now. Plans should consider novel and radical strategies to reduce infectious contacts and fill health worker gaps while recognizing the refugee may not have access to national health system or permission to go out of the camps for better treatment. As a global resource to fight this pandemic become insufficient, uh, the Rohingya refugee in Bangladesh must not be forgotten. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much Seifala. As I was listening to you, I was thinking about how those of us in the Western world often think about food insecurity and access to education in much, much different ways during the pandemic than the reality um, in the refugee camps among the stateless Rohingya. So thank you for sharing the much more, I would say, uh, devastating impacts of those very same issues we're feeling in the West, but having a much bigger and more devastating impact over over there. Um, last but not least is Arish Al Shamiri. She will be speaking about the situation in Kuwait, and she is a graduate student researching on statelessness, gender, race, class, nationalism, and state formation. Arish.
1: thank you, Jamie. Hi, everybody. Um, So for this presentation, I'm going to discuss the ways in which COVID-19 has specifically affected the Bedouin in Kuwait. My findings have been gathered in collaboration with Bedouin activists and members through pre-established community relations in Kuwait. Um, There are officially over 100,000 Bedouin in Kuwait. Um, They are indigenous to the Arabian Peninsula, but have been made stateless after the Kuwaiti Emirate transitioned into a modern state in the the mid-20th century. The Bedouin endure systematic marginalization from all aspects of social, economic, and political life in Kuwait as a consequence of pressure policies that aim to drive them out or have them denounce their claims to nationality. The government prohibits the Bedouin from accessing education, employment, proper healthcare, valid documentation, and other basic rights it offers to its citizens. The consequences of such deprivations are severe on a normal day, but have been aggravated during the pandemic. The government's responses to the pandemic have paid no regard to the ways in which the measurements affected the most vulnerable populations. In fact, many health regulations were implemented at the expense of the non-citizen populations. Some of these consequences include poor housing condition, as the Bedouin predominantly occupy small shanty houses in underdeveloped cities like Taima and Sulebia, located outside the margins of the city centre. It is common that large families are condensed in these small homes with no less than three members sharing one bedroom. During COVID, these conditions have made it very difficult for them to isolate and hence the likelihood of contracting the virus were high. The other aspect is employment. Given their precarious status, many have low paying jobs, which they can only get if they have valid security cards. And these cards are often short term and range from a period of three months to a year maximum, which makes finding a job even harder. The, issue, the other issue is that the Bedouin labor is often exploited by companies, given the nature of their unprotected status and their desperate need for income. This makes many employers take advantage of them by overworking them um, in, 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 in dangerous conditions and often without holidays. Sometimes they go on uh, for periods of three to nine months without getting paid. During the pandemic, the Bedouin employees were the most vulnerable uh, to lose their jobs as companies were making less profit or have had to shut down uh, due to lockdowns. The other issue is that many Bedouins relied on day-to-day work to make income, something which became difficult also give, due, due to lockdowns and curfews. So many Bedouin families were left without income during COVID-19 and facing evictions from their homes and difficulty uh, meeting, uh, paying for their expenses. Another condition is that many Bedouin families faced uh, faces difficulty accessing education as they were banned from accessing public education in the early 90s, which caused growing rates of illiteracy um, that lasts to this day because many families couldn't afford to send their children to private schools. For those who could, they send their children to low fee private schools, but many rely on donations to pay off the fees, which is not very sustainable. So every year during the first few weeks of school semesters, uh, we find campaigns for donations flooding Twitter to pay off student fees or else they face removal from the classrooms or school grounds. During COVID, these practices continued. Only students who did not pay their fees were not allowed to enter their Zoom classrooms if they, uh, if, if they had outstanding fees, that is. The other issue relating to education was the sudden growing need for devices for each student to attend classes, something which many Bedouin families couldn't afford. So in response to these things, uh, active Bedouin activists uh, held campaigns to gather money to purchase devices for, for these families and to assist them um, to, to pay for their expenses. Finally, and probably one of the most important conditions, which is actually a manifestation of the previous ones that I just mentioned, and that calls for urgent attention by the international community is the growing rates of suicide among the Bedouin over the last year or so. These violent conditions, that are inflicted on the Bedouin by the government and the severe consequences of their marginalization have caused intergenerational traumas that are beginning to manifest in a series of suicides among young and old Bedouins and now starting to affect children. In fact, in February, we woke up to the tragic news of an 11-year-old Bedouin boy who hung himself in his bedroom as a result of the psychological damages and pressures from the conditions that he and his family live in, which were instigated after his father was fired from his job in that same week. Bedouin children's conditions are yet to be fully examined. However, they they don't require too much examination as the conditions are very obvious. And these conditions are just the tip of the iceberg. Now, in light of these conditions, one would assume that the government has some sort of plan in sight to naturalize the Bedouin, but sadly it has not, Um, it does not. Naturalization remains uh, out of the realm of possibilities anytime soon. In the meantime, energies have been more put into mitigating the damages created by statelessness, especially during COVID. These include the utilization of social media as a platform to advocate for, for the Bedouin and to mobilize, um, as illustrated in the case that I just presented. Um, social media has proven to be a critical tool for the Bedouin activism in the last 10 years. So to conclude, um, the pandemic has really given us a glimpse of what it's like uh, to have restrictions on mobility, something which stateless populations experience on a day-to-day basis. Conferences, classrooms, and other knowledge sharing platforms have all become virtual. And this brought people from all around the world together and gave access to many of those who were unable to travel uh, to spaces that are meant to discuss topics that uh, that concern them first and foremost. And so uh, we have we have also seen the effectiveness of such virtual connections and solidarities like in the Black Lives Matter and Palestinian liberation movements and how social media platforms were instrumental in the successes of these movements so far so. Um, As we organize and plan in the future, I believe that utilizing these spaces um, and techniques to work with and amplify the voices of stateless populations all over the world is necessary. The struggles they face may be rooted in in their statelessness, but there are many ways to mitigate the damages as we work to demand governments to naturalize them. Um, My presentation ends here. Thank you, and I'll pass it back to Jamie.
0: Thank you, Arish. That was very illuminating and very tragic story about the mental health um, repercussions of not only the pandemic, but the intersection between uh, the pandemic meeting um, persons who are dealing with conditions of statelessness. So um, I, I just wanna thank all of our panelists for doing such an amazing job of condensing their research and their advocacy work into six minutes. It's not an easy task to present, but to do so in such a truncated format, is truly remarkable. So I just wanna thank all of our remarkable um, presenters. I see there's a question in the Q&A section. For those of you who are still with us, please do um, ask your questions through the Q&A section. I will be posing them to our panelists. Um, And we do have one here right now from Alison Petrosiello. And her question is, uh, thank you to the panelists for sharing your research. My question is for Dr. Yvonne Su. The UNHCR in its forced displacement report created the new category, quote, Venezuelans displaced abroad, quote, as a separate population of concern, different from its usual categories of IDPs, asylum seekers, refugees, or stateless people. How do you see this move? Could it contribute to enhanced protection or might it end up feeding into politically produced precarity that you identify as affecting Venezuelan asylum seekers in Brazil? Ivana send it to you?
4: Oh yeah, thank you so much for that question. So yes, they they are uh, separate and there's special attention paid to them. And indeed, um, Brazil said in 2019 that they were going to accept them on a prima facie basis, which is great. Um, But of course, all of that has been put on hold because of the pandemic and there's been a lot of uncertainty. Um, And the main thing to note is that there is no differentiation between you know, Venezuelan um, asylum seekers or LGBTQI plus asylum seekers. So there's still no further identification that those groups need uh, more protection, uh, which it, which has uh, been uh, an issue um, in general and particularly with, with this case. So it is, it is promising, but it's uh, hard to see how it will unfold as, as I think the pandemic has really uh, changed uh, a lot of things.
0: Thank you, Yvonne. Um, I just wanted to note that, you know, the common thread throughout all of these pieces as well has been about status, right? And um, I wondered if um, all of the panelists would comment on what they think about whether or not the pandemic has produced opportunities or ways in which advocacy in terms of acquiring status for their different communities that they're working with, um, and whether um, this is a moment in which we should take advantage of or a tipping point where people are starting to recognize this is an issue that we should be dealing with because the pandemic has kind of brought it to the fore or exacerbated it, or if the pandemic has um, is just an, another example of the continual ignoring or um, uh, just a deferral of, of the issue. and. Um, maybe we can go uh, backwards in 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 terms of speakers if they can comment on that um, as we're waiting for other questions to flow through. So Arige, um maybe just a few seconds on what you think about whether the pandemic has changed anything in 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 the acquisition of status.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, well, in the case that I have just um, discussed, to be honest, i uh, the pandemic has really brought to the surface, um, you know, more harsh realities uh, that are rooted rooted in the structural inequalities that exist, not just in Kuwait, but they also give us a glimpse of what the broader um, landscape of the international state system um, really presents us with, right, the challenges of of passing um, equitable uh, policies um, in, in light of this pandemic, right, but generally in ways that don't negatively affect the non-citizen populations, right? Um, as most of these policies were really centered around um, uh, the national population in each country and how to protect that particular population. So um, I, I think it gives us a great chance to review and analyze um, you know, these policies and think of ways to um, work through them.
0: Thank you so much, Areej. Um, Yuriko or um,
5: Saifala? Saifal, Saifal, did you want to address the question or?
6: You may go ahead, no problem.
5: Sure, I, I, re, I largely agree with what Arish said that um, the pandemic has really illuminated the structural inequalities that the Rohingya community is facing in Bangladesh. And, in diaspora, um, and there's so many compounding obstacles in this case that make it extremely complicated, um, especially the ongoing coup d'etat in, in Myanmar, which is stalling, um, well, yeah, stalling the repatriation, any, any um, hope of a safe repatriation. Um, but the coup d'etat and the civil disobedience movement, um, it, it is a political moment and a political window of opportunity for, for um, the democratic forces in the country to come together. So I do see some um, movement there or a window there. Um, but in general, I, I'm struggling to see um, what other more positive or... Um, windows of opportunity may be produced through um, the pandemic.
0: Thank you. Uh, Yvonne?
4: Yeah, I think for me, there's just a lot of uncertainty about what will happen after the pandemic with the group of people that have migrated. Uh, or for, you know, we're forcibly displaced across borders during this time, because, you know, it's, it's illegal. So are they supposed to, after the pandemic, go to the Brazilian police and, and let them know that they've crossed over during the pandemic and, and seek asylum um, that way? So I think there's a lot of question marks and without uh, proper policies that would make that procedure safe for those people, I think we will see um, a wave of people that will remain undocumented or, as I said in presentation, become stateless.
0: Thank you so much, Yvonne. Um, Anne? There is
3: actually a window of opportunity during the pandemic because prior to this, particularly in Sabah, Malaysia, you cannot even talk about healthcare for the Undocumented, stateless communities here. So I think realizing um, after just before the pandemic, there was a polio outbreak here among uh, children who have because uh, non-citizen children, a lot of them have never received vac- vaccination before. So they um, and there was a polio outbreak, and all the children um, had to go to the polio vaccination, and then suddenly the pandemic happened, and uh, and we. And then people have started mm-hmm. talking about vaccinating um, the whole population to reach, to be able to reach herd immunity. So there is a movement by the UN bodies uh, in collaboration, in partnership with the Malaysian government, mm-hmm. as well as NGOs that uh, ANAC is also a part of, and um, there is um, talk towards um. Efforts towards vaccinating um, everyone. However, we do not see it. We do not do not see it happening yet. Um, there have been a few um, a few people who managed to to uh, go for the uh, optional AstraZeneca shot, um, but um, we've also had people who were harassed um, who, when they appear at vaccination centers. Um, so, but it does at, at least open up an opportunity for us to advocate advocate for healthcare more. And it, this is, is what Anak has been advocating for uh, even before the pandemic. So we, we see this as an op- uh, window of opportunity and hopefully we'll get, healthcare will get better, especially for the, the children um,
0: here.
1: Yeah, that's all.
0: Thank you, Anne. That's very encouraging to hear. Um, Frederique?
2: Yes, uh, great question. I I do think there are opportunities that are uh, presenting themselves um, in terms of advancing uh, access to abortion for all, and not just for some in Canada, like because of the pandemic, uh, for two reasons that are kind of working together. well, as as you mentioned, Jamie, uh, the pandemic certainly illuminated uh, the precarious nature of, uh, of of in many areas, uh, including in reproductive health care. So, um, access to abortion in Canada has historically been uh, difficult for many populations, and certainly for marginalized populations um, and undocumented folks. And during COVID, it was uh, a harsh light was shown on that uh, how this. Uh, impacted many people, and certainly some more than others. And uh, I think one of the opportunities is that, um, unfortunately, uh, Canadians became impacted uh, by the border closures, by uh, the fact that no services, certain a certain point, are available in Canada. That there is no training for this, um, for these kinds of services to be be available. That hospitals are not amenable to offer them because of abortion stigma and stigma around reproductive health care generally. Um, so it's never made a priority. And because Canadians started to uh, be severely impacted by border closures, by the lack of ability to travel, several of those programs suddenly, uh, like policies changed, uh, were gestational age limits changed um, trainings were offered, there was a community of care, because often the frontline service providers are motivated to offer that care. That's not necessarily the problem. Uh, Trained one another and created a community of practice to be able to offer care at a later point in Canada, which as an incidental uh, is a positive uh, development for undocumented people because of the inability to travel to the United States when needed. And then uh, paired with that, I would say, so that that progress and that opportunity came not because of the recognition of undocumented people being impacted the most, it's because finally the most privileged among us were impacted, but the progress will, is, will be there nonetheless, or at least the opportunity. Paired with um, COVID uh, really bringing to light the conversation around injustice, mixed with the reckoning uh, with anti-Black racism that has created more momentum for those conversations and the kind of solutions that will, in fact, be more uh, long-term and all-encompassing, including a push for status for all uh, in Canada, like pathways to residency and citizenship and ensuring that healthcare is made available for all. So uh, the conversation has become more present in the last year because of COVID and because of um, the Black Lives Matter uprising um, that we have all been witnessing and being a part of.
0: Thank you so much, Fred. Um, Also very encouraging. Um, I have two questions here to round out our our very fine discussion today um, and I'll pose them to all of the um, um, panelists. Uh, So we have, uh, I'll combine the questions. Um, The questions are surrounding concerns or thoughts about upcoming vaccination campaigns. Do any of you, in reflecting on how your community has experienced a pandemic so far, have concerns or thoughts about how the vaccination campaigns will be carried out in your communities or whether it will be done equitably or not? Um, And in line with this, um, some of you had talked about the increased use of digital spaces as um, creating activism um, around the issues of statelessness um, what does it look like in your community? How could it be enhanced? So this, these are, we have just about five minutes. So um, I'll start in the middle and work around uh, through the panels. So maybe we could start with um, uh, Eureko or Saifala, um, if you guys could comment on vaccinations or, and or the digital um, activism that could take place.
4: Saifala?
6: Yeah, so um, uh, uh, for the the Rohingya uh, refugee camps or in diaspora or in Myanmar, uh, uh, we we don't have any hope of um, uh, vaccinations uh, for the 1 million Rohingya refugees living in Bangladesh. But um, as a diaspora community in in Canada, uh, we have been trying to do a campaign with the UNICEF I hope you heard uh, about it. Um, uh, we we have been trying a campaign for thirty eight millions uh, COVID nineteen uh, vaccines uh, for the refugees, not only Rohingya, for all of, uh, for all the refugees all over the world. So that's one things uh, we have been trying to do uh, on that. But in Bangladesh, I think you heard about uh, the situation in India. Um, the and the situation is so uh, harsh in Bangladesh um, due to fear of uh, uh, transforming uh, the variant to uh, Bangladesh. So a Rohingya refugee uh, in Bangladesh, uh, as we mentioned before, uh, there's uh, a gap of uh, digital connectivity. I mean, uh, internet uh, or using cell phones um, and lack of information. So uh, they're, they're far away from, communicating uh, with the technology, uh, some sort of things. But uh, as far as uh, we are concerned, are so living in different, uh, different countries, we have been trying to educate uh, with the Canadian governments and uh, other European, uh, European governments uh, just to try to get some sort of support and trying uh, to organize campaigns uh, to help uh, the refugees, not only the Rohingya, but other refugees in Middle East, uh, Africa, or other uh, others.
0: Thank you, Safa. Um, uh, Aris.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Jamie. Um, I guess for the first question, um, see the vaccine rollout has already began a couple of months ago in Kuwait, and and um, what we have. Seen during that time is that the vaccination has prioritized citizens over non-citizens uh, as, a, as a as a main criteria, despite the the disparity in the numbers. You know that that, that it, the population is thirty percent citizens and and seventy percent non-citizens. So you'd assume that you know in this case you are supposed to vaccinate the majority first, um, but that's not how it played out. Um, and in the first couple of months, obviously, um, the Badoon, some of the Bedouin, uh, had difficulty uh, registering for these uh, vaccinations because they had um, expired uh, security cards. And so uh, it took a while after, you know, a couple of people posted about it and um, used Twitter to, to point out this uh, technical issue. Uh, before they fix it and then people uh, were able to then register for the vaccination right um, so again it goes back to my point about you know passing all these reg- regulations and measurements um, without really taking into consideration how it affects those who are uh, most vulnerable and i think that brings me to the next question about digital activism and i do want to point out before i kind of talk about how um, it's been utilized and how we can utilize it for statelessness activism is that digital spaces are are, are not accessible to everybody right not everybody has internet so when we're talking about refugee camps and such um that is definitely the situation for a lot uh, of people right but nonetheless um it still remains a very critical space because not only does it enable stateless activists and people to share um their experiences and realities um create awareness but that but it enables uh, everybody basically to see the ways in which statelessness intersects with several issues that are often also present in the same space in the same digital uh, air, right? Uh, that includes health, uh, gender issues. So for the last couple of uh, years, there has been a lot of uh, Bedouin feminist activism taking place, talking about the ways in which gender dynamics of statelessness in Kuwait um, are. And, um, and, and basically, it's been, it's been very instrumental, as I said, in creating this awareness and, um, and, and, and bringing resources into the community and sharing them to, to mitigate the damages. So uh, I hope that answers the questions.
2: Thank it. you, Arige. Um, Frederique? Yes, thank you. Uh, well, from what we know of the vaccination rollout in Canada, uh, or even like how COVID has struck in Canada, is that migrant and undocumented people are at the forefront of the COVID-19 crisis because of working in essential jobs that sustain communities, because of... Um, uh congregate living working conditions and farms and factories and warehouses or as caregivers like having to continue working through the pandemic and still have been kind of a sidelined from services and protections and um that must be remedied for um the vaccination campaign of course so um many people don't have the health card that is necessary to access the vaccine uh, many people are afraid of accessing health care in case of their personal information being shared with federal immigration enforcement. And in some cases, employees have already started to threaten migrants with job loss and dep- deportation if they aren't vaccinated. So people are put in these really difficult situations where vaccination will increasingly become uh, like a, a passport in itself and uh, while being sidelined from um, the ability to get vaccinated. So. Uh, you know, Action Canada and, and everyone in Canada should be supporting and supports vaccine provisions that should be free of charge, require no health card or health card number to access, be accessible, not collect any ID or addresses or information about immigration status, and then develop alternative mechanism for tracking vaccine doses. Um, so that's on health authorities, that's on people... Um, who should use every avenue possible for campaigning for this. Uh, All, everyone's health is dependent on everyone having access to vaccines and that is true in Canada and that is true globally in terms of vaccine nationalism, in terms of not centering the needs of those who are most marginalized from our healthcare systems. And so um, I think those are important next steps. Thank you so much, Fred,
3: Um, Anne. Um, So some uh, of the worries we have, I think uh, the same as Frederick, Uh, we worry that people are are too afraid to come forward uh, because of their undocumented uh, status. fear of getting arrested and all that but um however um i mean they there, there is talk of uh vaccine vaccinating uh undocumented stateless uh, migrant communities and there are one third of the population in in Sabah, uh, East is Malaysia. so so we have to um they are saying that the uh, government is saying that they'll be vaccinated at the last phase, after all citizens are being um, vaccinated, um, but um, so we're trying to come up. Uh, they're trying to uh, the UN uh, bodies are trying to come up with another system because we have a, a system where we um, like an app uh, for Malaysians. Uh, however, um, I this is not accessible to non-citizens, so they are coming up with an alternative uh, system for them. I'm not sure if everybody, I mean, if there would be trust by the undocumented status communities to to go on this uh, system. However, there is also, um, we have also pushed for um, the government to work with NGOs uh, on the ground so that uh, during the the vaccination um raw to these communities, um, they will see more familiar faces and ngos that they have worked with. So then it will be less uh fear, I mean it will be they will be less fearful to come forward. So hopefully that will work uh, that will work out as planned. Um as for uh digital spaces, I think Anak um, because the undocumented status communities have always try to remain hidden um, so it's really hard to access uh, the communities but however during this, this time of lockdown and we were thinking of how to reach them and we thought about uh, and then we we, we learned about Facebook uh, targeting where we are able to drop points uh, in a map to, uh, to, to um, target commit, uh Areas where there are a lot of undocumented, stateless communities. So that's how we reach them during the pandemic. And also, a lot of them has uh, reached out to us using WhatsApp because WhatsApp use uh, quite uh, low um, data. Um, and we've also seen a lot of. Uh, uh, Events online that talk about statelessness to raise awareness about statelessness and and because it's online and and for those who have access um, as, and also those who are also in those situation of statelessness and documentedness they are able to to also uh, be uh, learn more about. Uh, about what, what they can do and what uh, what is the movement um, on advocacy for an augmented and stateless community. So it has been um, uh, good so far, and we want to see how we can explore this further.
0: That's all. Thank you, Anne. And uh, last you. but not least, Yvonne.
4: So you need proper documentation to get the vaccine and, as I've outlined earlier, it's very difficult to get proper documentation. On top of that, the more serious issue is the fact that shelters are not the great best place to be social distancing or protecting yourself from COVID-19 and we had heard cases where one person at a shelter got COVID-19, all the other 20 people got COVID-19 because you just can't stay away from each other in those circumstances.
0: Thank you, Yvonne. I just want to say thank you to the attendees who stuck with us uh, past the hour. Uh, I just want to thank our panelists again for their amazing insights, for sharing their work, for the continual work that they're doing in their respective communities. Um, I want to invite you again, if you want to find out more, to read their pieces in the upcoming issue of Statelessness and Citizenship Review. Um, And I finally just want to thank the University of Ottawa's Public Law Centre and the Human Rights Research and Education Centre for sponsoring this event. Thank you everyone, I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye now. Migration Conversations is created and hosted by me Professor Jamie Liu and produced by University of Ottawa Tech Law Fellow June Gleed. This podcast was made possible with the guidance and assistance of University of Ottawa Tech Law Fellow Ritesh Kotak, Carleton University graduate student Rachel McNally, as well as the generous support of Carleton University and the University of Ottawa shared online projects and initiatives. You can find more Migration Conversations episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube with closed captions. Thank you for listening and a special thank you for all the guests who have shared their experiences publicly.